I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. week's episode of six queens in continuing with our theme of spaces this week we are going to be talking about some places that aren't always on the popular six wives scene so we're going to be traveling to the places the uh the palaces and castles specifically that our six queens lived in before marrying henry and after marrying Henry. So the places where they were themselves a little bit more and they got some more privacy as opposed to the places where they were on show as queen, like at uh, Hampton Court, for instance. So this week, I think we're really pushing the boat out this week. We've got quite a few places to travel to. So we are going to be taking a whistle stop tour uh, to Hever Castle, to Wolf Hall, to... Chelsea Palace, Little Drive by Anna Cleves House in Lewis, and I think Falls Enough. So as Kate was saying, um, these are the places that um, I think we can kind of see our queens in a, uh, as being more themselves in their, kind of their, their traditional family homes or free from the shackles of Henry um, and from marriage to Henry. First, we're going to be talking about uh, childhood and family homes. So that's where we get to Hever. So Hever Castle, as we we all know, or I shouldn't say we all know, um, as as common knowledge, um, belongs to belonged to uh, the Berlin family. Um, but it was actually knocking about a little while before they um, took it over. So it was actually built in around 1270 and it was actually a medieval defensive castle. Um, and then when the uh, Thomas Berlin, um, Anne Boleyn's dad, took it over in 1505, he actually inherited it from his own father, William Berlin. They started to add on places like the the long gallery and um adding that Tudor splendor to the to to the palace um which it otherwise didn't have before um and i think what's interesting about hever is um just as a a, a space it you know entirely of its own and uh, free of um the tudors is how many times it's changed hands and just how how much it's adapted and it survived um because um, for those of you who have been or who have seen pictures of it, the, the gardens that actually exist there now weren't there during the time that Anne Boleyn would have lived there. They were actually added in the 20th century by the Waldorf Astor family who took it over. So just some fun little Hever Castle facts for you. And what I think is interesting is that uh, it has significance as Anne Boleyn's a childhood home a lot of people say but actually Anne Boleyn didn't spend a lot of her childhood there it was mostly um I guess her young adulthood you would say like in her 20s when she was uh in Henry's court back in England but for a lot of her teen years her most most you know formable years she was abroad so she wasn't actually growing up at Hever as we would understand it today like this idea of a, a childhood home yeah, so she she left in um, 1513 and ended up going over to uh, the court of um, the Archduchess uh, Margaret of Austria and then travelled over to France and spent a bit of time in the French court before returning to England. 
um, and returning to the court of Henry VIII. When we then see Anne returning to Hever Castle again, it's in, it's in a dramatic way. It's because she's been banished from court by Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, for her um, betrothal to um, Henry Percy. But I think he was a very good place where we see change taking place in Anne's life, even if it's not happening direct, you know, directly there. We can really see Hever in kind of two ways when it comes to Anne Boleyn's story. I think on the one hand, you have it as her family home. So like you said, it's a place of return for all of these different events happening in her life. It's her family home. So it not only is the place where her family exists, but where all of the drama in her family exists. Like you said, it's always kind of a pivotal point for her to come back to Hever which then also, on the other hand, makes it the place of um, refuge, but but banishment as well. Like, you get this idea that um, she didn't always enjoy her time there because she would have rather been playing the game at court. But here she was stuck in the countryside away from London at, you know, her parents' house. Um, I don't know. I just, I get this sense that in... I don't want to I don't want to give out the misconception that this was sort of like her, um, you know, her her private place and her sanctuary when I think in a lot of cases it was sort of a fall from favor to have to go back to this place in the countryside and kind of hide out. Again, one of the other times that it kind of springs to mind that she was there was during one of the sweating sickness outbreaks um, and, you know, be- that that physical separation from the spaces that 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 she loves you know like you said at court and at that point then away from henry himself as well um so it's definitely a a point of 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 refuge for her and and i think after the last year also i think everyone can attest to the fact that you know being able to go out and do your own thing and not being stuck at home is you know something not to take for granted (laughs) so for better or worse the sanctuary was kind of invaded when henry started visiting Hever. There are a lot of uh, records of Henry actually visiting the Boleyns at Hever Castle and traveling all the way there to see Anne when she wasn't at court. So um, I think people view that in two different ways. It's either you have Anne trying to like put off Henry a little bit um, and say, you know, I'm going to go take my space and we can we can think about things or whatever. Um, I'm going to try to distance myself from this. And then Henry jumping the gun and saying like yeah no I'm gonna go visit you anyway um but then I guess you also have this idea that Anne was sort of um playing the game with him like seeing how far literally he would go for her so I think it depends on your view of Anne which um is always up in the air because we will never know for sure but I definitely think you can interpret that both ways I love the idea of her playing like the home like advantage but uh, no no you you want to come and see me you're going to come here nope yeah, you're coming here. And um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Henry's visit is something that, you know, has remained part of the the fabric of Hever Castle really because um when you you know if you, again if you've seen pictures or anything like that would you know know anything about Hever, um the room that Henry supposedly stayed in is still there with the bed that he had and things like that. Down to the point that when you come out of Hever Castle, one of the first things that you see is a pub called the Henry VIII, which I always think is quite fascinating. Again, there's that lingering association that where Anne is, Henry is. It's not like, you know, you inviting your boyfriend over to meet your parents for the first time. If the king is coming to visit your house, there's going to be a lot of to do. 
Um, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to prepare a chamber for him to stay in. He's gonna be um, staying with the neighbors, so there has to be a big big to do happening over there. Some fuss has to be made because Henry doesn't travel lightly. Henry brings an entire retinue. Um, you know, he has all of his people with him. He has all of his clothes and his horses and the stuff he does for fun, like his falcons. Uh, so if if he sends word to you that he's going to come visit you at your childhood home, it's a really big deal because the neighbors are definitely going to know. It's not something that is inconspicuous. So I think the Boleyns reacted to the visit from Henry with great pride because it just shows how well off they were and how prominent their family was becoming, even if it was a bit scandalous. You're still being visited by the king, which we'll we'll mention later was was a thing that happened. The king did go visit uh, country residences of the nobles. But then I guess I have to think about it also from the perspective of Anne that, yes, you know, she was to some extent angling for position. I think she did like the idea of becoming queen, regardless of how much she planned that. We'll never know. But I think she was into the idea. So she probably did like the attention. But then on the other hand, I can't help but think that she wouldn't have liked all of the fuss. It would have been almost embarrassing to her on a certain level to have all of this happen when you're just trying to sit at home. There's something very tender and very loving about these two in, in the early stages of their, their courting. You know, with the letter writing, absence makes the heart grow fonder if you choose to take that sort of line of arguing, you know, with Anne saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. And Henry seemingly can't be, with, can't be without Anne. Like you said, it's a bit, bit awkward if someone's inviting themselves over to stay for the weekend, especially if it's uh, the King of England. And this is probably, the like you said, there are pubs named after it in the 21st century. So this is a really big deal for the local area that the king is coming. And it's all because of Anne. And everybody knows that the king is in love with Anne at this point, even though he's married. It's a mark of favor, sure. But it's uh, something that isn't quite as simple. And I, I suppose that then we see that play itself out again with Jane Seymour when Henry decides to go and visit her um, her family home at Wolf Hall and decide to pay court to her at home. Wolf Hall, which I'm sure is a very familiar name to most people who like the Tudors, is the family home of the Seymours. Wolf Hall was really significant because a lot of historians think it was the place where Henry first noticed Jane Seymour. Like he might have been aware of her existence before, but um, traveling to her family home was the place where he really got to know her and see her on a smaller scale, a more intimate level. Uh, the reason Henry came to Wolf Hall was not to make a grand romantic gesture like in the case of Anne Boleyn at Hever Castle, but he was on one of his summer progresses. And these were opportunities for the king not only to leave his own castle so they could be, you know, cleaned and aired out after all those people had been there, uh, but it was also a chance for him to travel the uh, counties around England, show himself off a little bit, uh, and enjoy the hospitality of all the different noble families of the area. So in this case, Henry was in Wiltshire, which is where Wolf Hall is, and the Seymour family residence was on the schedule. So he stopped there on the summer progress of 1535. And interestingly, on this stop on the tour, Anne Boleyn did not attend. So it was just Henry, Sands, his wife, 
And yeah, that's when historians think that very likely he uh, really noticed Jane Seymour because uh, there wouldn't it wouldn't have been a huge party like at court. There wouldn't have been a lot of distractions. And Jane really had the chance to shine, which probably didn't happen much when she was just a lady in waiting at court. It's court, but diluted and very much scaled back. So what I find interesting is that opportunity for personalities to shine. Like you said, with, with, with Jane, you know, she probably wasn't noticed in the same way that Anne would, you know, people like Anne would have been noticed at court. I don't know. I th- I think for me, there's something quite, I suppose, more familiar in the way that, you know, maybe we'd then start dating someone now, you know, you get to know them, not just that look across the room and, you know, that's it. Like, I've decided I want to fall in love with you. It's, it's, it's personal and it's slower, I think, in a strange way, which adds to that romance element. And I suppose with with Jane it builds into that idea that she was probably Henry's one true love you outside of her, her giving him a son there's also a really interesting dynamic in terms of um i guess whose turf they're on like i think there's a power shift with leaving court because court is Henry's domain whenever you are at court you are subject to whatever he wants basically and if you listen to our Hampton court episode our court episode you'll know that those spaces revolve around him. Like as much as we don't want to talk about him on this podcast, because we're talking about the women, we have to talk about him because this world very much revolves around him. Except when you get outside of the court, because then at a place like Wolf Hall, the Seymour family home, it's their domain. The king is coming and, you know, yeah, he'll he'll sort of be in charge of the space once he gets there. But it's up to the family to really construct his visit. It is their turf. So it's interesting to think that the romance between Jane and Henry really starts when they're on Jane in Jane's territory. And she has that chance to shine because she's not trying to play someone else's game. She's in her own home and she's surrounded by her own people. So she kind of, she has the power, I think, in that situation. Henry's sort of uh, noticing her because she's in control of the situation to some extent. I Yeah, I suppose I, I never really thought about it in that way, that she, that, that idea of soft power and, and Jane using that to her ad, ad, advantage in to not necessarily actively pursue pursue Henry, but you know, make herself potentially known to him in a way that he wouldn't have known her otherwise. And I definitely think in in that instance, it does sit in um, direct contrast to his visit to, to, to Heaver and how he invaded that space with Anne, because really what he was trying to do there was solidify and that that relationship or want of a relationship with her in her space. So I think, you know, in the case of Heaver, that that power shift is still very much in Henry's favour because it's there to woo her. But again, it is still her space, her house, in the same way that, that Wolf Hall is like that for, for Jane. And I guess just for a moment, I want to backtrack a little bit with Wolf Hall, just because I think it's important to consider these spaces as... Um, really the only spaces that women are allowed, noble women at least. So very much like 
Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour seems to have a history of service at court. It's very much speculated that she served not only Catherine of Aragon, but also Anne Boleyn as a lady-in-waiting. So she's coming back and forth a lot from her home, just as Anne Boleyn is um, at Hever. But there's a different sort of narrative with Jane, whereas Anne is this very worldly presence and she seems to really enjoy being at court. There's this idea of that Jane is at court not because she enjoys it, but because she feels trapped at home. Because she was relatively old by the time she got married to Henry. She was in her late 20s. She was um, not really being noticed at court. I think she only had like one marriage proposal by the time she was in her mid-20s, which is not great. I know it sounds weird for us being in our mid-20s, but um, it's it's not great. So I think for Jane, Wolf Hall was really kind of not a prison because she, you know, she had a good life there. She was part of the nobility, but um, it, it represented almost the restrictions on her as a woman. Like you can either stay at home and, you know, do domestic chores and be a woman, a single woman, or you can at least go to court and you can have a job and you can meet and see people and in this case for Jane it worked out really well you know it get much like Anne it it is a it's a pivot point for her you know she's going she's going to court she's coming back and I think while the changes for her are indeed slower and less volatile there's always that she's going to return there and her circumstances are very different you know like you said from from one marriage proposal proposal um, to then becoming Queen of England in a very real way for Jane you know Walpole is the, the the spark that changes everything whereas I think for Anne a lot of the change that happens within in her life is is away from from Hever but she returns there on on occasion to then launch herself back out into the world I think J- Jane in that that sense launches herself into the world and in onto the public stage from home Much like last week when we reflected on how the tower was a place that for Anne Boleyn had very different significance, same place, but very different meanings depending on what stage she was at in her life. I think for Jane Seymour, you can imagine Wolf Hall as a similar place, like where maybe not as dramatic, but maybe where as a teenager or a young adult, she's feeling this, um, you know, I guess urge to leave and um you know if she's not going to leave through marriage it's, if that's not working out for her she can at least go do some work and she's not trapped there but then later that's where she almost plays her greatest card you know like that's where all of her fortunes suddenly start to change if you know the the narrative can be believed if that's indeed what happens so uh yeah it's interesting all of these places that we're talking about that have dual meanings for the queens you know, but very different, like very opposite ends of the spectrum. And this is why we this, this is why we needed an episode on space, <laughs> because <clears throat> I think it does definitely go back to an early point that we've made, and and one that I will probably die on a hill on one day. That it's important to discuss the spaces change it that change and things like that happen in because we can we can speak of you know fortunes rising and falling and things like that but unless we understand where they're taking place and like you were saying just then about the duality of the space i think we miss a big part of anybody's story 
so now that we've talked about childhood homes or family homes, we're going to be talking about the homes that some of our queens lived in after Henry. So specifically, we're going to be talking about the experiences of Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr, which I'm really excited about because I think it's a period of time in these queens' lives that we don't really talk about a lot. We tend to talk about their tenures as queens, but not much else. So we're going to be focusing on all the different spaces that they were granted uh, after either the divorce or annulment or um, in Catherine's case after she was widowed. So it's a really clean transition, actually, because one of the castles that Anne of Cleves was actually granted in the settlement of her annulment was Hever. Thomas Boleyn, Anne Boleyn's father, died in 1539, and the property went to Henry. So Henry actually owned Hever for a while, but then it became one of Anne of Cleves' palaces in her settlement in 1540. So from 1540 until her death in 1557, Anne of Cleves was the owner of Anne Boleyn's childhood home, which seems weird that both of our queens had private space, let's say, in the same building. It, very much because I think when you think about places like Hever Castle, there is that common association that there is that immediate association with Anne Boleyn, and you know that's her space and that's the Berlin space. And I think sometimes I I have to force myself to remember that she she Anne of Cleves I should say has a presence there, and I think there's some really actually lovely examples of it um on the fireplace in the long gallery you've got the a uh, the ac for anna cleaves um in there and um, a very lovely um stained glass window actually with um anna cleaves is anna cleaves coat of arms and Anne Boleyn sitting side by side i will say there's not a ton of evidence that people have been able to find that anna cleaves stayed at hever a lot uh, she does sign one letter to Mary I in the 1550s saying that she was at her, like, poor house of Hever. So you kind of get the implication that she didn't like it that much. But um, it, I think it is interesting to theorize that she knew sort of the ill fate of the family. I don't know. I wouldn't want to spend time there if my predecessor who had been executed was from there. I, I don't blame her for that. No, not at all. I, I imagine it feeling a bit awkward. This is yours now. Um, You know, well, the, the, clearly the Berlins aren't going to be using it again. In in a sort of very callous way, but in, in the same sense, I, I suppose it, will mo- it makes more sense to redistribute the sheer amount of la- like because let's not forget by this point you know the crown had a lot of land to give <laughs> there's there's a lot of land going about so what are you going to do build build somewhere new which is very expensive or redistribute it but i think as you say is she must have been very aware of her predecessor's link to that place there was a really interesting point that you touched on that i i want to go back to just to uh, make things clear to people is that when we talk about people and in this case, Anne of Cleves being granted Hever Castle. It's not just the house, the castle, it's the lands. Anne didn't have to stay there. This wasn't her new home. She was mostly being granted this for the income it allowed her, um, the, the farming and having the tenants on the land. It was her main source of income. The more land she owned, the richer she was. So Henry wanted to give her a lot of profitable lands and therefore the manors that stood on the lands 
in order to keep up the appearance of a woman of the court. So Anne of Cleves was actually very wealthy after the annulment was granted to her. And this is shown by how many properties she had. So Heaver was just one of several. But um, yeah, she she had her, her choice of residences. And actually, from what I've been able to tell in my research for this episode, her favorite residence after the annulment was actually Richmond Palace, which had been Henry VII's favorite re- residence. So it was this big, grand royal palace. And so it makes sense that Anne then was like, yeah, okay, that's going to be my main house. She's a lady of good taste. I, that's all I'm going to say when it comes to that. <laughs> because then later, it was actually one of Elizabeth I's preferred palaces. So you can see, like, this wasn't Heaver is is a nice place and it's really big by modern standards, but in terms of a manor house, Heaver and, you know, Wolf Hall, too, weren't huge. But Richmond was a place, it was a court. It was where Henry VII loved to stay. It was where Elizabeth I liked to stay later. So you can imagine the scale, one compared to the other. I know which one I would pick. (laughs) It is one of my favorite things about Anne of Cleves and her and her living her best life because she she was ne- she was never happy as queen and she was far happier I think uh, it's fair to say uh, after um, her divorce from Henry, you know she had so much property that you probably didn't even know what to do with to the extent that she did not visit all of the properties that she actually had. <laughs> And I think there's a really lovely example of this um, uh, of a property in Lewis in um, in Sussex, um, which is quite aptly named the Anne of Cleves house, which she never visited. There is no evidence of her ever visiting there because, you know, if we think about places like as as Kate was just saying, you know, Wolf Hall and Hoover Castle, you know, and and their scale, Lewis House or her house in Lewis rather is tiny. So much so that it was actually thought to be a um, a coach house for um, visitors to the the um, Lewis Priory um, back in the 13th century. So going back to what you're saying about you know that that scale and that grandeur of okay, I've got these lands it doesn't necessarily mean I have to do anything with them. And going back to a story that you told in our very first episode. Plus something that you said in the first half of this episode, I really love that these places have an association that isn't wholly true, or at least it's not the full story. So like what were you were saying in the first half of the episode with Henry's visit to Hever being memorialized sort of erroneously with a pub around the corner from Hever. Anne of Cleves house, a house that she never visited for you is very strongly associated with Anne because that was kind of your first exposure to any of the Queens, right? Was going yeah. only to realize that hey actually she never even went through hit the door yeah I think I think me as an eight nine year old at that time would have been a bit devastated so (laughs) um you know fast forward a few years and now it makes perfect sense that you know she never would have visited but I I think at the time you know you say we're going to visit a house where this queen used to is associated with a queen how do you explain that did she ever, she, but she never actually lived here. And then you have to get into that conversation, that kind of more complex conversation about land ownership and property ownership and things like that. It was just easier. But I just think it's interesting how uh, these spaces hold these impressions so well, even yeah. in the 21st century when we're growing up and we're going on, on field trips with our schools. 
Um, well, you were, I didn't. But um, it's it's just interesting to me that the events that happen in these spaces stay there, even yeah. when the person the events are associated with didn't actually even go to the space. And uh, Anne of Cleves House is a really great example of that, I think. We're making lots of connections today, and I'm very proud of us. Um, it. I think it kind of goes back to, you know, we, we touched on it at the start, but it's to do with that, that historical imagination and that the way that people get not trapped in these places, they get immortalised, I suppose, in, in these places and in and, and just the, the broader historical imagination. And I think that's a very, very powerful thing, which, again, pat on the back for us, is where we come into play and looking at these women more thematically um gives us the opportunity and and the scope to to showcase them and extend i will hopefully maybe extend the historical imagination and start thinking about them slightly differently and start thinking about the spaces slightly differently you know i think a lot of people who travel to heaver castle say are really surprised when they find out that it was also one of Anne of Cleves's residences. And, um, you know, that connection is striking. We don't have to over-explain it. I think it, it inherently strikes people as being very fascinating. And, yeah, Anne of Cleves doesn't have as much impact on the space as Anne Boleyn did, uh, just because, obviously, the Boleyns were there longer, and they have more of an impact physically on the space in terms of what they were building and changing. But it is part of Anne of Cleves' story as well. And I think that's why it's really important to stress the fact that she had all of these houses and she was traveling between them. She was picking and choosing which one she best preferred to live in, but she was still living off of the land that all of these places were sitting on. They were all technically within her property and they added to her, her, her wealth as a member of the court. And I think it is worth stressing a little bit as well. Anne of Cleves was knocking about until 1557. You know, that's a solid 10 years after Henry died and after Catherine Parr as well. So it definitely did her justice to have all of this property there. Like you said, you know, not just to keep her going financially, but to keep her going. I, I think having those different places to visit and, and, and to entertain and to be entertained at is is quite important. I think that's actually a fabulous segue to the last of the places that we will be um, verbally visiting today, <laughs> which is Chelsea Palace. And actually, it's the one that I'm most excited to talk about because though it lo no longer exists, um, you can't even really see the ruins of it. But it was in uh, what is now the Chelsea neighborhood of London, right on the river. It was owned by the Crown for a lot of its existence. And it is where Anne of Cleves died in 1557. But it also, like Heber, has a connection to another of Henry's queens because Catherine Parr lived there as well right after Henry died. But before we get into that nitty gritty, um, do you have some dates for me? Always. It, it, it's, it's got a bit of a convoluted history, I suppose, um, in, in the amount of times it's changed hands and changed ownership. So um, originally it uh, belonged to Baron William uh, Sandys. Um, who actually exchanged it um, in May of 1536. It was a part exchange uh, to Henry VIII, uh, which gave the crown absolute power over the property. Um, and then Catherine Parr was granted it for life as part of her jointure in 1544. And then following her death in childbirth in 1548 and the execution of Thomas Seymour, who was then her husband in 1549, it then returned back to crown property. So it's got a little while where... 
it's just kind of sitting a bit un- unused really um, and the house itself was actually demolished in 1753 um, after the death of its last occupant, which was Sir Hans Sloan. So this is happening uh, a few years before Anne of Cleves dies. So um, we're reversing time a little bit, but we're talking in the years right after Henry's death. Catherine Parr is the survivor, as she's so often labeled. So she is the widow of Henry VIII. And as the widow, she is granted a settlement or a uh, a dower, as some people might call it, in much the same way that Anne of Cleves was for the divorce. Um, as part of this, Catherine gets a lot of land and palaces, and one of them is Chelsea. Chelsea is considered to be her, quote, townhouse. It is in London. It's relatively close to the center of power at Westminster. So it's uh, it's really seen as her main residence, as opposed to some of the other country residences that would have been granting her all the money from the land and the farming. There's an interesting period, though, where... Catherine liked the idea of being in London because she really thought she had a shot at being Queen Regent. We'll get into that later because that's a whole other interesting story. But she thought that um, because Edward, Henry's son, was so young that Henry would want Edward's stepmother to be a influence over him and at least be on the council if not act as regent for Edward since he was so young but that didn't happen and yet Catherine kind of held out hope and she wanted to be close to court in the event that it did so I find it really interesting that she felt the need to physically be there to hold out and see what power she could actually get out of this whole thing. I think for Catherine it must have been a bit of a weird time and such a weird shift taking place in her, in her life of henry henry's died okay right next job and i think it kind of goes back to her her motto really and i think she can kind of be summed up with that to be useful in all that i do so she's thinking okay right let you know we, we've got we've got edward to look after now you know gonna be regent let's just get the job done type thing and then i don't this weird thing sort of takes place with her um, when she finds out that she she doesn't have that role. And I know this is something that you were really excited about. And I see you smiling. Would you like to tell everybody what that is? <laughs> I just find it really, really, really interesting that this shift suddenly happens where Catherine is sort of released as a public figure. I mean, she is a public figure because she is still the, the widow of Henry VIII. She's the dowager queen. And yet she's released from this role of being the queen. A lot of the stuff we've been talking about, the queen being a public figure and not even owning herself in a lot of cases, suddenly there's this shift. Whereas the widow of a king, Catherine is expected to go and live quietly and respectfully, especially in the time of mourning after the king was dead. And yet we don't quite see that happen. She really holds out hope that she's going to be the queen regent for Edward. And when she's that dream is gone, she's kind of released from that. I think she goes a bit crazy. Like she suddenly has all this freedom, all this power. And a lot of it, I think, represented by Chelsea. She's giving given her own space. It is away from the court. 
she doesn't necessarily have to worry about the political intrigue constantly. And Catherine was somebody in her tenure as queen who faced a lot of potential scandal because of her religious beliefs. She suddenly released from all of that, not all of it, to, you know, but a lot of it. This is her own sort of private space away from court. It's far enough away that I think she could get away with a lot. And that's exemplified very neatly by her relationship with Thomas Seymour, who is the younger brother of Jane Seymour. And he was really close to his nephew, the king, at this point. But he had also been close to Catherine Parr before she got married to Henry VIII. And after Henry died, Catherine decided to forego tradition and not observe the appropriate period of mourning, much to the chagrin of, say, like her stepdaughter Mary thought it was very disturbing. But Catherine actually secretly got married to Thomas Seymour and had little trysts with him at Chelsea. I mean, they were married, so I guess they weren't technically trysts, but like she was... uh, she was sending for him and they would spend a lot of their time together at Chelsea privately. And this was a long time before anyone actually discovered that they were married. I'm so in love with this side of her. I'm so, I, I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, she's <laughs> letting loose. You know, she has all this freedom now. It's not quite as much freedom, I think, as that we're allowing her, but it's much more freedom <laughs> than she had as queen. Yeah, no, I 100%. And do you know what? I think it's, this is where, for the first time, I, I think we it's fair to say we see the real Catherine Parr. It's just such a subversion of this image that we have, the stereotypical image of Catherine Parr. A lot of people who, you know, aren't as well informed have this idea of her as being very, like, quiet and the peacemaker and devoted to Henry in his final days, uh, nursing him in his ill health. But then when you read about her, almost the second he dies, she's like, okay, am I going to be regent? Am I going to have power? No? Okay, now I'm going to just go have fun. And she's careful. She's telling Thomas Seymour in a very modern way, I think, you got to be gone before people see you. Like, we can have our fun at night, but then you need to be gone in the morning so that people don't know. Because it was a secret marriage. She was trying to, she at least knew that she was not being um, respectful to the memory of her late husband by marrying so quickly after his death. But it's such a, you know, 180 from this image of her being the survivor who, you know, made it to the end. Her life is really beginning. Yeah. She she had two husbands before Henry who were um, older. And I think she wasn't unhappy. But now she's married to the man that she was madly in love with. She has her own life. She has um, all this money and lands. She can really, she can really start over so i think chelsea represented a really at first a really great period of her life where she's really herself yeah and i think if we stick with that narrative of her being the survivor this is her reward you know she's she's done her time you know she's she's done everything that's expected of her after people find out about you know catherine's little pleasure palace thing going on Again, she moves forward and she makes it, I think, into her family home. Once people know that she's married to Thomas Seymour and they've gotten over a little bit of the shock of, you know, how not 
great it is. She brings in her stepdaughter Elizabeth to come live with her and Thomas Seymour. Uh, and very, I think very much Catherine considered Elizabeth to be her own daughter. She was very much a mother figure to Elizabeth. So that was really important to her to have family with her. Um, Thomas Seymour's ward was Lady Jane Grey. So for a while, Lady Jane Grey lived there. And Catherine could very much be a surrogate mother figure to these two girls who were just as intelligent as she was and who had the same religious beliefs as she did. And they had a happy little family life, I think, there, which must have been really important to her to create her own world with all the people that she wanted in the world, as opposed to all of those people who were constantly angling for her downfall at court. I just love that. I, I really wanted, you know, for, for that to be, in a sense, you know, her happily ever after. She, as, as I just said, you know, she's she's done everything she needs to and she's now surrounding herself with people that she loves and she can kind of mentor and, and help kind of de- them along their way. And it's just something very poetic about it and I think it, it it speaks Chelsea Palace I think speaks to all of the facets of Catherine Parr's personality it's almost as if we planned this but actually I don't think we talked about this in planning for this episode Chelsea actually does have a bit of a duality as well with one space representing two very different periods of a queen's Ooh, life look at yeah. you yeah I, this is totally off the cuff people um <laughs> Actually, when I when you think about it, all of the drama that happened at Chelsea after Catherine had sort of constructed this happy family thing for everybody, it sort of fell apart. And I think a lot of it was to do with Thomas Seymour trying to angle for power. Right when Catherine reached sort of the pinnacle of her happiness, she found out that she was pregnant with Thomas Seymour's child. And this was her first biological child and only biological child. So she was on cloud nine. This was exactly what she wanted for herself. She's living her best life. And then this drama starts to happen between Thomas Seymour uh, flirting, doing some inappropriate stuff with Elizabeth. There's a whole rabbit hole we can go down there. But suddenly, because of that, everything falls apart, where Elizabeth is sent away to get away from Thomas Seymour so that things aren't seen as being inappropriate anymore Catherine and Thomas leave Chelsea to go to his estate at Sudley and suddenly almost as quickly as it started this is all over it's just interesting again this duality of Catherine's happiness just as she got it fell apart spectacularly but I think as well what we see at Chelsea is the duality of the kind of the final the final acts of our queens, in in a sense, Catherine, um, pardon me, Anne of Cleves dying there in fifteen fifty seven, and you know, um, as, as you mentioned just now, um, Anne of uh, Catherine Parr falling pregnant, and then ultimately, while it wasn't at Chelsea itself, she dies in childbirth. It that it set the scene for her for her kind of exit. And a lot of the times, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr are considered the quote lucky ones because they have a life after Henry. Like you said, we're talking about these places they lived and we haven't even really mentioned him um, because he was not involved in their lives at this point. He was, he was dead. So um, it's, it's nice and comforting, I guess, for me to think about these women actually having a life because in so many ways, being the queen did not allow you to have your own life. You were constantly being looked at. You were on parade. You were constructing this image 
of who people wanted you to be rather than who you actually were. So at Chelsea and, you know, at Hever and Richmond or wherever, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr are actually being themselves and they are just enjoying their lives. And even if it ultimately didn't go well for Catherine in this case, there was a period of time at Chelsea where she was free and where she was really happy. And that just is really nice when you look at somebody who otherwise must have had a very stressed and strained life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. In the next episode, Callie and I will be giving you a Halloween special where we talk about the final resting places of our six queens. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and read more about the queens on our website. There you'll also find a full transcript of this episode, plus the resources we use to prepare for our conversation. Long live the queens!